0: This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Tear Gas, From the Battlefields of World War I to the Streets of Today by Anne Feigenbaum. One hundred years ago, French troops fired tear gas grenades into German trenches, Designed to force people out from behind barricades and trenches, tear gas causes burning of the eyes and skin, tearing and gagging. Chemical weapons are now banned from war zones, but today tear gas has become the most commonly used form of less lethal police force. In 2011, the year that protests exploded from the Arab Spring to Occupy Wall Street, tear gas sales tripled. Most tear gas is produced in the United States, and many images of protesters in Tahrir Square show tear gas canisters with Made in USA printed on them. Meanwhile, Britain continues to sell tear gas to countries on its own human rights blacklist. An engrossing century-spanning narrative, tear gas is the first history of this weapon and takes us from military labs and chemical weapons expos to union assemblies in protest camps, drawing on declassified reports and witness testimonies to show how policing with poison came to be. Tear Gas, from the battlefields of World War I to the streets of today, by Ann Feigenbaum. Out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. The prospect of nuclear war with North Korea sits near the top of my list of things that have been unthinkably bad about Donald Trump's presidency. Hillary Clinton's bloody track record of imperial misadventures, of course, made her a frightening prospect as well. And critically, it also made her a profoundly unpersuasive messenger when it came to critiquing Trump's bellicosity. That said, Clinton did have it right when, at the Democratic National Convention last year, she proclaimed A man you can bait with a tweet is not a man we can trust with nuclear weapons. Today, we all worry that a personal slight from Kim Jong un could prompt Trump to do something horrific. And that's terrifying. But the conflict with North Korea didn't begin with Trump. It stretches back to World War II, and it includes all sorts of historical moments that are rarely discussed. All of this missing context, plus Trump being so utterly frightening, are what's made me want to do an episode on Korea for a while. And not just about North Korea, but about South Korea as well, the country on whose behalf we are ostensibly fighting— but where we have an ugly track record of military despotism and today are generously putting at risk of annihilation. My guest today is Tim Shorak, a Washington-based journalist who grew up in Japan and South Korea and has been writing about the Koreas since the 1970s. He spent April and May in Gwangju, South Korea, where he reported for The Nation and other publications on the 2017 presidential election. Before we get rolling, please take a moment And support this show. We can only afford to do this with listener support. And I know that there are plenty of you out there who are like, yeah, I like the show, I listen to the show, and I will donate at some point. If that's you whose earbuds I'm speaking through at the moment, it'll just take a few minutes. Patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We don't use paywalls to coerce donations out of you. We just give you all the fruits of our labor for free and then ask nicely for a little help afterwards. If you can do $5 a month, that's huge. If you spend, say, eight hours a month listening to the show, it's not a bad deal for you either, I don't think. We also have book swag available for those who want to donate more. Okay, thank you all, and on to the show. Tim Sharak, welcome to the dig. Thank you. The presidency of Donald Trump has ushered in or intensified a variety of really bad realities. Many of those bad realities were expected, things like the Muslim ban or hostility to tackling climate change. But during the campaign, a newly heated up conflict with North Korea was not, I think, a major topic of discussion. To start off, Why, in terms of what's been happening recently in American, North Korean, and South Korean politics, has 2017 become the year after well over half a century of conflict that we suddenly feel like we are so uncomfortably close to the prospect of catastrophic nuclear war?
1: Well, I would say that the current situation is directly related to the Year, what happened in the year 2006, which is when, during the Bush administration, North Korea exploded its first atomic weapon. Uh, this was after a long period of agreeing to shut down their nuclear program under the Clinton administration. The agreement broke down uh, under the Bush first couple of years of the Bush administration. And then they, you know, North Korea throughout the inspectors had been there and started, re, you know, re put their program together and started building a plutonium bomb, which they did in in two thousand six. And basically, you know, since then, after that, Bush did try to negotiate uh, under the six-party talks, which and you know, but but the situation kept escalating, uh, partly in. in because uh, conservative governments in South Korea uh, had taken power after 2007, 2008. Uh, so the situation continued to intensify in the latter years of Bush. And then during the Obama administration, uh, Obama's policy was basically you know, to hope, hope that North Korea would collapse. It was called strategic patience. And uh, there was no negotiations with North Korea during that time. And so, you know, it just kept escalating. And and uh, so Trump kind of did inherit a very tense situation, but President Trump made it far worse by doing these open threats and, you know, saying he's going to change the policy, but also threatening them with annihilation and and pretty much feeding into the North Korean, you know, justification for having... You know, nuclear weapons and advanced, you know, missile capabilities, which is that you know the, the United States is ready to attack them at any time. Uh, so you know, a situation was already tense when Trump took over. He tried to you know shift the policy toward a more confrontational policy, and you know, as as a result, of, you know, it really escalated into the you know situation we're in today. That's a kind of brief summary
0: reading what is going on inside Trump's head is obviously a difficult task. But what do you see as the main forces within the Trump administration pushing such a confrontational line with North Korea? And to what extent should we see this as being more pushed by Trump himself? And to the extent that it is being pushed by Trump as a highly idiosyncratic individual, is this just a far more high-stakes version of other personal feuds that he's had with everyone from CNN to Bob Corker to Rosie O'Donnell?
1: Well, I think it's probably driven by him, and I think you know he his and his closest advisors I think the the, the key person in Trump's policies at the White House has been HR. McMaster, his national security advisor uh, who's been uh, pushing this idea of, of what he calls preventive war, which would basically involve you know, preemptive strikes by the U S military. And, you know, and <laughs> we've had such was, a great
0: track record with that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Terrific. Right. Uh, but, but he's been, I, I guess that's why he named it, you know, uh preventive rather than preemptive. Um, but in effect, that's what it would be, you know, in, 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 in the, during the summer, uh, information began to emerge and started to be reported in the media of, of pe- Pentagon, you know, uh, battle plans basically to, uh, there was one report on NBC, for example, where uh, they said that the Pentagon had plans uh, to, if ordered to, uh, to destroy something like, you know, two dozen missile sites and nuclear sites in North Korea, uh, you know, led by B-1B bombers stationed in Guam that would lead, you know, air attacks uh, on these sites and, and. um uh, off, they would be flying in international skies, which meant they could do a unilateral strike on on North Korea without South Korean involvement at all. Uh, those kind of stories began to emerge, and also, you know, a lot of talk that sort of, you know, war. This idea of of a, of a war, and maybe you know, they try to call it, it would be a limited war or something, but. You know, talk about war really began to accelerate in Washington, and it's the talk of the town now. I mean, every forum you go to, people are like, well, we're really close, you know, we're 50, 50, 50% chance of a war, et cetera. Uh, but from, you know, all these, these think tanks, to people in Congress, the talk is, you know, uh, you know, what will it take to, you know, destroy these sites? There's not, there's very little talk about negotiation or the roots of the crisis or anything. Uh, so I would say, you know, it's it's Trump's kind of, uh, uh, you know, you know he wants. I think he sees himself as sort of like a, you know, MacArthur or something like that. You know, <laughs> uh, contemporary MacArthur, and he wants to, you know, show the world the American might can, you know, can can destroy a terrible enemy, and you know he thinks he can build himself up that way. Uh, a combination.
0: And a combination of MacArthur and Pershing, I guess he's fond of. That. Oh yeah, yeah, he
1: loves Pershing, right? And his counterinsurgency, <laughs> the pig's, in the, the in pig's the, blood. <laughs> yes, in the Philippines. So this this kind of militant, you know, imperialism, uh, which which he's, he, he he represents, and then he's being advised by people like you know McMaster. I mean, interestingly enough, you know, his Secretary of Defense uh, Mattis, who's a you know former Marine retired Marine general, uh, has been you know pretty much. You know, in favor of and outspoken about the need for, you know, a negotiated settlement to this crisis, for diplomacy. And he and Secretary of State Tillerson have been, you know, at least talking publicly about negotiations and, you know, Trump, you know, waxes and wanes on that, you know, one day, you know, Tillerson, there's a story that says Tillerson has established contact with North Korea uh, diplomats and there may be talks soon. And then let that, you know, later that day, Trump tweets you know, don't bother Tillerson, you know, you know we've, we're we not going the negotiated route or something like that. I mean, this is his own secretary of state. So, you know, clearly there's, you know, some small group within the White House that's, you know, that's pushing this, this, you know, militant posture. Although the other day, you know, Tillerson came out at the White House uh, press room and when they declared North Korea a, uh, a terrorist state um put them back on the terrorist state list. Uh, you know, Tillerson came out there and, you know, pretty much said he's totally in sync with what Trump is doing. Um, but it's, you know, it's, it's they, they rejected this sort of, you know, uh, what they call strategic patience. Uh, and they say, you know, the last 25 years of negotiation or talks with North Korea have been fruitless because, and the press backs them up on this, you know, they they, they say, you know, North Korea just breaks every agreement. Uh, which is not true and does not hold up to to the facts. Uh, in fact there have been agreements that that were, you know, you know that held for quite some time, particularly the agreement that was signed during the Clinton administration, uh, where North Korea actually froze its uh, nuclear program before they had a bomb, but they were building plutonium bomb, froze the program for 12 years.
0: Well th- that um, makes me think about it, it seems like the very premise of the U.S.'s approach to North Korea is this widely shared assumption in the United States that North Korea is an irrational actor. They might be a cruel uh, actor, an unusual one. It seems very wrong to say that they're irrational. Like you mentioned, they did abide by agreements entered into in the 90s with, with Clinton and they've survived for quite a while under an enormous amount of pressure. Can you talk a little bit about this idea that the North Korean regime is is unlike other regimes that are operating within the interstate global system?
1: Well, there's certainly not. There's no nothing irrational about a country wanting to defend itself from uh, outside power that has threatened to destroy them. There's nothing irrational about that at all. And uh, while... They're even quite predictable, actually. If anyone who follows North Korea's pronouncements and its its uh, controlled media and what they what the you know government says, uh, you know what they do. Often it's just they, you can go back and see that they were saying they were going to do this and they do it. I mean, you know, like at the beginning of this year, uh, uh, Kim Jong Un said he wanted to complete his you know nuclear uh, weapon development. Uh, in a New Year's address, and and that means you know nuclear development plus you know they're mi- bu- you know completing their missile program and building missiles that, you know can can fire uh, ICBMs that can that can launch uh, weapons you know to the United States or any other you know foreign target, uh, and they said they were going to do that and they proceeded to test and continue to work on that program, so you know they're they're actually quite predictable. Uh, and like I said, you know, a country, a regime, anyone trying to defend itself, you know, from an outside power, there's nothing irrational about that. And you know, like they saw uh, what happened. You know, I mean, the use of uh, the, the the pretense of you know weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was what led you know the Bush administration to invade Iraq and occupy Iraq, and uh, so. You know, he sees Kim Jong-un sees, you know, nuclear weapons and, you know, capable of being fired by by an ICBM or his protection, his deterrent against that that kind of that kind of, you know, attack from outside from the United States.
0: The lesson for any rational actor as as twisted and dangerous as this is for the whole world, but it's a very rational lesson learned from Iraq and Libya is that not having weapons of mass destruction means that the u s and their and its allies might very well try to overthrow and successfully overthrow your government
1: right and the, the, the libya example is is very pertinent uh, a couple of weeks ago uh the a the most high level defector from North Korean government since nineteen seventy nine uh was in washington, and uh he used to be uh Uh, Mr. Tay, who used to be the the deputy ambassador to London for North Korea, and he defected about a year ago. And he gave a speech here at the uh, Center for Strategic International Studies in which he talked about the impact of the the U.S.-NATO intervention in Libya on Kim Jong-un. And he said that, you know, here was a country that, you know, agreed to stop you know, building nuclear weapons, to, you know, essentially disarmed in that way. And then a few years later was overthrown uh, by a coalition, you know, the, the U.S. bombing and U.S.-NATO bombing campaign and aiding, you know, certain groups in Libya overthrew him and he was, you know, murdered uh, by, by these groups. And so, uh, you know, giving up the nuclear weapons is not, not a very good idea in, in that context. And like again, like this, is quite logical. So you know that they also see uh, there's this line that the under Kim Jong Un they've really developed. It's called the Byung-jin line, and this is the this is sort of the overriding philosophy behind what they're doing militarily, which is that nuclear development, building nuclear weapons, and the and the missile technology, and developing long-range missiles and short-range missiles. Uh, uh, these go together with the development of the economy. You know, it's sort of this high-tech uh, nuclear and high-tech missiles, you know, help the economy grow as well. and and they kind of go to they go together. They're in sync. they're in parallel. And you know that's that's the logic behind this military buildup uh, is that you know the the, the the nuclear weapon program and the missile program feed into a high-tech economy. And actually, if you look at that, and you look at the U.S. Uh, in the immediate post-World War II period, uh, you know, during, you know, sparked by the Korean War, this massive American military buildup that took place in the early '50s, and the development of our military-industrial complex that Eisenhower finally you know, warned about when he left office. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's sort of it's very similar, I think, to what Kim Jong Un is talking about in North Korea.
0: It's a military Keynesianism.
1: Yeah, you know.
0: Um- before before moving on, I want to just uh, underline some of what you were just touching on, which is that in the most hawkish corners of U.S. foreign policy, the U.S. foreign policy establishment at, pre- at present, preventative war is being touted as a solution to the North Korean nuclear weapons program. But what you've laid out is a very clear track record of U.S. preventative unilateral uh, offensive war actually becoming a major driver of nuclear proliferation so quite the opposite of what it purports to be a solution to
1: yes and you know besides the fact that us has had nuclear weapons aimed at north korea for you know 60 years i mean north korea began developing its thinking about you know building its own nuclear weapons capability in the 1980s while the us still had thousands of tactical um, nuclear weapons in South Korea. Uh, mm-hmm. th- those were, you know, carried. Some of them were like, you know, hand carried. You could carry them on your shoulder You'd fire from your shoulder. The U.S. soldiers had, uh, and and those were those weapons were withdrawn uh, in a unilateral move by President H.W. George H.W. Bush in 1991 as part of a move to withdraw such weapons from countries all around the world. Uh, and but, you know, they withdrew them from South Korea, but the U.S. has, you know, vast armada of Navy ships that are based in Japan that carry nuclear weapons uh, and also has, you know, B-52s and other kinds of bombers that, that carry them as well, uh, all in that region. You know, so it's, you know, the, the, the weapons have always been pointed there at North Korea. And, and so they, they felt under threat. Uh, you know, in, in, because of that, and when the United States, you know, starts talking, uh, you know, these these what really, you know, one of the drivers behind North Korean policy also is these massive U.S. and South Korean military exercises that take place twice a year, which are, by the way, the largest military exercises held anywhere in the world by any country. And uh, in which you know they do run through uh, training exercises of you know invading North Korea of what they call decapitation strikes to take out the North Korean leadership, including Kim jong-un uh, and also they, they do train, <laughs> dress, they,
0: dress rehearsals for invasion, not not remotely provocative
1: right and and so like they say they, they and they say over and over again in their statements, you know that is a key concern uh, these, you know, the other day, they, they you know there was a statement put out uh, by the North Korean government which said, you know, of course, only the first line was was captured in the press, which is uh, or in the headlines, which is like they will not negotiate their nuclear weapons. Uh, and the second part of it is, you know, until the U.S. and South Korea stop these these what they call provocative military exercises. So, you know, I think, you know, that's to me that's where the grounds for some kind of negotiation solution lie. Uh, But that's nevertheless, you know, their their justification for it.
0: I want to ask you now about South Korean politics, because I think they're so often rendered invisible in the U.S. amidst the conflict with North Korea. Moon Jae-in was elected this year as a more left of center president, more supportive of dialogue with North Korea than his conservative predecessor Park Geun-hee who was the daughter of the former South Korean military dictator, General Park Chung-hee. There's a lot here. So I guess to start, Park was impeached amidst this massive and fairly bizarre corruption scandal. Can you lay out what that scandal was?
1: Well, it had several elements to it. But, you know, basically people were sick of the corruption of the South Korean government under under Park Geun-hye and also her predecessor, Im Young-bak, who's also being you know, questioned over uh, uh, corruption involving the intelligence services right now, as we speak. Uh, but there, were, you know, the, the, the you know they, the the Korean economy, South Korean economy, is dominated by these large chaebol, uh, big business groups like Samsung uh, and Hyundai, and so on. And they they give huge amounts of money to these conservative candidates. And in fact, Park Geun Hye was getting bribed by Samsung and other companies. I mean, actually, you know, under the table, you know, payments. Uh, for for pushing certain kinds of policies, so that was one element of it. Uh, there was also this other element of you know many South Koreans just felt this government was just completely inept and just did not give a damn about the people. Uh, an example of this was the uh, terrible incident that happened in two thousand fourteen of this of this ferry boat that sank, and uh, with with over three hundred young high school kids aboard and. The government, uh, the government uh, uh, attempted rescue was just a complete disaster, and uh, you know many people needlessly died, and the and the government basically turned their back. And you know, Puck and Hay refused to meet with the you know victims' families, and even when they came to try to meet with her, they were kept away by police. So this was, you know, there was this arrogance, there was corruption, and then there was this whole strain of, uh, you know, like the the, the the whole scandal broke open because a reporter, you know, somehow got hold of this laptop that belonged to this shaman that was an advisor <laughs> to Pak Geun-hye. And the shaman advisor had been writing some of her speeches and had access to the national security secrets. And, you know, this was just sort of seen as like, you know, the, the ultimate in, in, in corruption. And so, uh, but I th- and there, then there was the element of, of repression. I mean, you know, There was this, uh, you know, especially against uh, when labor movements were were, uh, opposing, you know, the government's uh, attempts to weaken unions and make it easier for companies to uh, fire people and and corporations to fire people and basically weaken labor protections. Uh, There was massive labor demonstrations in 2014, 2015, in which the government, uh, Park geun government used, you know, you know, way excessive force. And in fact, you know, people were, people died um, by their use of uh, water cannons that fire, you know, water at tremendous velocity that are loaded with uh, pepper fog that, that, you know, burns your eyes and skin. Um, and and even the UN, you know, was was was, was critical of South Koreans, you know, police over, the overuse of force. And, and so all these elements together, you know. Sparked this, you know, popular movement, and you know, week after week, month after month, uh, people just stood, and you know, holding candles in, in Seoul and other major cities, um, and and it was a completely peaceful. Nobody was arrested. Nobody was hurt. You know, during months of these of these vigils, and they and basically forced the National Assembly to begin looking at impeachment. Uh, and, 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 so many of these issues that I talked about were part of the articles of impeachment and her own party split, um, you know, they saw the writing on the wall that the public was very much, you know, against her. And so the, her own party ruling party split and they, they sided with the voices for impeachment. And so she was impeached and, you know, some of the charges were rejected by the constitutional court, but the, you know, the ones that really held were the corruption charges. Uh, and uh, the constitutional court said her you know her, her uh, impeachment was there for legal and she was forced out of office and arrested. She's still in prison and her trial's been going on. Uh, so you know, you have to give it to the South Koreans. Uh, she is the third former president to be jailed for crimes they committed, you know, during their during their time. Wow. Well, um, I could and... come up with
0: three American presidents that <laughs> pretty easily that I'd like to <laughs> see him present. Right. <laughs> you know, they, 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 take
1: justice, they take justice seriously there.
0: Um, I think it's important to highlight the historical context here before we get deeper into Moon and, and the present um, uh-huh. in South Korea. On the, the liberal and left movements, political movements on the one hand, and the ruling conservative elite on the other, these— these factions have deep roots going back to the aftermath of of, of World War II when the conservative elite was made up in in large part, I've read, uh, by Japanese collaborationists, which ended up taking form as a U.S.-backed military dictatorship that was brutally repressive towards the liberal and left opposition. Can you Kind of sketch out the the important contours of that history and how that that led up to the the current moment.
1: Well, you're talking about the in you know the, the 1950s, uh, you know, bef- right before and after the Korean War, when South Korean South Korea was ruled by Sigmund Rhee, this autocrat uh, who was much hated for his repressive policies. It was even despised by the U.S. because he kept talking about. You know, invading North Korea and and you know conquering North Korea, unifying North Korea under his rule, and after the Korean War, the U.S. did not want to have any part of that. <laughs> uh, but you know, that's when I was a kid when he was still president, and one of the something I'll always remember is when I was in Korea in 1960 when he was overthrown this People's Revolution. You know, people went into the streets from. For for days and people were shot by police, uh, but he was overthrown, um, and uh, there was this big push, you know, to to get him out from all ages, you know, all classes really, and uh, also this was at a time, 1960, when uh, Korea's future was was not was not quite clear, and and a lot of people in the south and the north, you know, wanted unification. They'd been divided, had been this terrible war. But people still wanted reconciliation and, and moving toward unification. There was talk in South Korea of a united Korea being neutral between the Soviet Union and the U.S. in the Cold War. Um, and in that period from 60 to 61, there was a relatively liberal left government in South Korea. And there was a lot of tumult politically. And You know, actually, young students were going to the border and meeting with North Koreans and. Um, it was a big change afoot in South Korea and its relationship with the United States. Uh, but that was all ended in 1961 when this general Park Chung-hee took over a military coup and he had been trained by the Japanese Imperial Army. Uh, he had actually served in Manchuria, you know, during the World War II, uh, fighting, you know, uh, Korean communists that were fighting the Japanese. Who
0: were led so, by Kim, who were led by Kim Il-sung.
1: Kim Il-sung and others, yeah. And uh, uh, so, you know, there's this dichotomy that sort of, you know, uh, defines, you know, Korean history right there. Uh, And so, you know, the the Sigmund re-government was, the U.S. saw any move toward unification uh, as not just, you know, you couldn't be for unification without being a communist. That was the U.S. thinking. And so there was, and that's what was the thinking of the, pro-Japanese, the former Japanese collaborators who were part of the re-government and the police who had served with the Japanese. And so, you know, the, the Cold War thinking, you know, really descended on South Korea in the late 40s. And and so any movement, you know, toward, you know, like not having a divided country, but maybe unifying, keeping, keeping the country unified was stifled in the South um, and and violently so. And there was, you know, a lot of uh, uprisings that took place in South Korea during the 1940s that were brutally suppressed by the by the Korean military with support of the U.S. And, of course, the U.S. in the south um, ruled through a military government. It was a military government in South Korea. Now, you know, the Soviet Union was. Uh, Occupied the North. This was part of the agreement between the Soviets and the U.S. at the end of World War II. Was that both 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 countries sort of believed that Korea by itself was incapable of ruling itself, incapable of self-rule, and you know taking itself out of out of colonialism, uh, and so they thought they would occupy it for a while and then and then sort of oversee this kind of unification or whatever the Koreans wanted. Uh, but, these, you know, the Cold War uh, thinking just, you know, deepened the division and, of course, you know, led in, in 1950 to all-out war uh, when the North Korean army decided the time had come to, to liberate South Korea. Um, and, of course, then, you know, the U.S. Re- you know, came into South Korea to cut off the North Korean forces, push them north. And then President Truman made a very critical decision to keep going. And, you know, they called it rollback at that time. And they invaded North Korea and uh, then to try to make, you know, one Korea, <laughs> I, I guess, under Sigman Rhee. Uh, but that, that's when the Chinese military came in with, you know, millions of soldiers and pushed the U.S. back at tremendous loss.
0: I think people really forget that the that U.S. and Chinese forces actually traded fire with one another on the batter, battlefield.
1: Yeah, people do. And, you know, but the Chinese haven't forgotten that. Uh, I mean, Mao Tung's son was killed in Korea. Uh, it's also for the U.S. Marines. Uh, generals like Mattis, who, who, who remember this, he wasn't there, but he certainly remembers it. Uh, you know, it was a tremendous loss for the Marines. I mean, the U.S. Marines led the, uh, the push into into North Korea. And uh, there were several divisions where, where went way up in the north. There were, there, the idea was to get to the Yellow River with China. And that's when the Chinese army came in and surrounded them. And they had to withdraw under just terrible, terrible conditions. Uh, you know, thousands died, froze to death. It was just, you know, unbelievable situation it is, uh, for the Marines. And so. The, actually, and then during the, the, you know, the two years when they were negotiating a truce, over those two years, the last two years of the Korean War, the U.S. completely controlled the skies, and just obliterated North Korea. There was nothing left, literally. I mean, firebombing.
0: It, was, it, it was one of one of the most brutal bombing campaigns in in history.
1: World history. I mean, you know, I mean, one of the worst. I'd say probably the worst because there was nothing left. I mean, you know, I, I grew up in Japan during the fifties, and I could still remember you know, seeing uh, destruction from the bombing of Tokyo. Fire bombing of Tokyo in April 1945 obliterated large parts of the cities, burned it down to cinders and, you know, napalm. Uh, and that happened in many other Japanese cities. But in North Korea, it was like every single city, every single village, every place was just to- totally burned down to the ground. And, uh, you know, of course, you know, North Koreans, you know, never Ever forgot that, and they don't let their people forget it. I mean, you know, from a, you know, from your being a baby to you know, an adult, you're, you're you're imbued with the history, and and the terrible history of that of that war, and to see Americans as you know, people out to kill you, and and uh, so, um, that's part of their ruling you know ideology. Is is this fear of uh, another Korean? Uh, but it's really important to. You know, for people to understand this very complex history, because, you know, I mean, the 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 Japanese collaboration part of it, you know, actually uh, lasted quite a long time in South Korea, and once South Korea became, you know, pretty much fully democratic, I wouldn't call it fully democratic, for some reasons. Some of this national security law. It was
0: it, it was sort of an elite elite managed transition to democracy after eighty seven.
1: Right? Uh it was not an elite managed. No, I mean this was this was people power.
0: Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. yeah no, no, in no, in no. response to the mass protests, but they but the, the I mean the elites kept in in place uh, certain.
1: Well, they. Controls. I think I think actually um, I mean unfortunately the the, mo- the the national security law that still is on the books was never uh, you know, never changed. Um, and, and, but, but, you know, when they, people in 1987, it was, you know, like recently, except millions of people in the streets after the, the protests in the eighties began, uh, were sparked by a a young student being tortured to death. And people just had enough of this police state because there was Park Chung-hee Uh, The military dictator, he ruled until 1979 when he was assassinated in the midst of very widespread protests, led led by labor, led by workers and students, 1979-1980. After Park Chung-hee was killed, another general assumed control of the military, and then the government declared martial law. And he was far
0: more brutal than Park
1: even. He was very brutal. And there was the uprising in the city of Gwangju where they sent special forces uh, who massacred people just standing up for democracy. Uh, People fought back with guns. Um, And the U.S. at that time in 1980, you know, decided to back the South Korean army in putting down this uprising, uh, which really angered many, many South Koreans. And a lot of South Koreans have never forgotten that. But, you know, so, Sean, the, the second general, you know, was in power when the people protest, um, you know, forced a major change. And 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 the biggest change was that they got the right to, you know, elect their own president as opposed to uh, having, you know, uh, it being decided by a parliament, one third of whose members were picked by the dictators, right? So there was popular elections. And during the popular elections that happened in 1988, Unfortunately, the um, kind of progressive left candidates split, you know, so there was sort of two sort of left, you know, on the left candidates, more, more liberal candidates, and then there was conservative. And so actually one of the former generals who took over was the first president elected, No tae Uh And, uh, and then, then there was a, a sort of a, a former dissident uh, named Kim Young sam uh, He was elected president. He was pretty middle of the road, and then in the late '90s, Kim Dae Jung, who was the longtime opposition leader who had almost been executed by the Chun government, uh, was elected uh, president. And uh, it was under Kim Dae Jung uh, who, when South Korea opened up in terms of started this so-called you know Sunshine Policy, where they opened up uh, to North Korea and try, and Kim led this push to to defuse tensions and try to rebuild trust through economic and political exchanges that lasted for quite a while. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can
0: support them on Patreon.com. Hey, obviously you are listening to The Dig Radio. As you probably know, we have started doing a second weekly episode. To keep that going, we really need your support by which I mean your money. So please hit pause and go to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com, and make a monthly contribution. We really appreciate it, and we can't do this show without our listener's support. So thank you. And now, back to the show. I think this will help people understand where Moon is coming from. If you could explain a little bit what the Sunshine Policy was, what its successes were, and why it ultimately failed to secure a lasting peace.
1: The policy was in the late 90s. Uh, and of course, this is after you know President Clinton had negotiated a What's called, you know, the 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 agreed framework with North Korea under which they had agreed to uh, turn, you know, end their nuclear uh, bomb uh, program. Uh, so that was in '94, and so that that there was an atmosphere there already for, you know, defusing, you know, ending the ending the crisis and ending this this uh, you know standoff, military standoff between North Korea and the U.S. and South Korea, and so Kim Jong began, you know. Opening up, like there's lots of changes made. Like, first of all, there was you know just basic, uh, you know, expansion of citizen exchanges. Uh, you know, Korean, South Korean investment in North Korea by Korean, South Korean companies. You know, sports, sports teams, family visits who haven't uh, seen
0: each other for decades.
1: Decades, uh, but also like ordinary citizens. You know, people involved in academia. Uh, you know, cultural you know, uh, music, et cetera, you know, there was a started. you know, people began to meet each other from North and South. And that was important, I think, for breaking down uh, in South Korea, the idea of North Korea as enemy, you know, getting back and meeting people, you know, your your families, and then seeing North Koreans as just ordinary human beings like you, you know, really broke down a lot of the animosity. Uh, and, you know, one of the lasting, you um, Sort of monuments to that period of time was this, what was called the Kaesong Industrial Zone, which was built, was an industrial zone built just north of the DMZ in North Korea, where South Korean companies set up factories and North Korean workers, you know, labored there and made products for the world market, Uh, you know, and that was seen as, you know, helping South Korea with its technology, North Korea with its technology development and and in in employment, and and it was that kind of program that, that, you know, really they thought would lay the seeds for a longer peace, And you know, uh, Kim Dae-jung was succeeded uh, by another progressive president who continued the same policies, named No Mu Hyun. And uh, No Mu Hyun was an activist, a, a human rights lawyer, continued these sunshine policies. But it must be said that during this time. Both Kim and Kim Dae Jung was often, you know, seen by U.S. intelligence as, you know, sort of a leftist and, you know, sort of out of sync with, you know, long-range U.S. policy, and uh, rumors that he might have been a communist and so on. And too no, consi- no too Mu-
0: conciliatory to
1: North Korea it's at the end of the day. Too conciliatory and always, you know, he had, there was his, you know, his roots are in the left and so on. Um, but No Mu Hyun the same way he was a human rights activist had been very involved in the anti-dictatorship, uh, you know, movement, democratic movement. Uh, and, and so, he, you know, he continued a lot of these policies, but they did come under tremendous pressure. Now, you know, when from the U.S., Kim dae paid a state visit to President George W. Bush in 2001. And he was ta- he came here to try to get an official stamp of approval from the U.S. of his sunshine policies and, you know, negotiating with North Korea. And Bush completely turned his back on him. In fact, embarrassed him, humiliated Kim Dae Jung, this courageous dissident leader. He came to Washington. Bush just said, "Ah, we, you know, we don't trust North Korea. We're not going to negotiate with them. That's that," and and and, and rejected rejected the policy. It's a, and, it's
0: a remarkable thing to say to a South Korean president, given that it's South Koreans who are sitting within range of just a surreal amount of. Of conventional weaponry that could l- destroy Seoul in what, like,
1: a day, right? And it's their country, right? I mean, at the end of they, the day, yeah, <laughs> It's their country. They have the right to talk to North however they want to. You know, if they want to unify, I mean, it's their country. Uh, the U.S. sees it as basically, you know, you know, a protectorate that's that's basically the, the U.S. controls, and they expect South Korea to go along with whatever the U.S. You know, strategic uh, you know, policy is. So, and, did the
0: U.S. ultimately undermine the the effectiveness of the Sunshine Policy?
1: Uh, well, actually, the, the it, was, it was it sort of worked to the U.S. advantage, really, because the U.S. was able to you know negotiate with with uh, then North Korean leader uh, Kim Jong Il. Uh, you know, after this, after the agreement was signed uh, with Clinton. Uh, there was. They came very. U.S. and North Korea came very close to signing an agreement, which would have ended North Korea's missile production. Um, there wouldn't that have been something? And and uh, they were very close in 2000. The, the negotiations were never completed. The agreement was never signed. Uh, and then you know Bush took over with his neocons, and they were against the agreed framework from the beginning. And of course, you know, like I said, they they didn't go along with Kim dae sunshine policies. But and and so they basically. They accused North Korea of, of in 19, of 2002 of uh, violating the agreement by, uh, by trying to build a uranium uh, route to the bomb, which is they were buying equipment to, to uh, enrich uranium for a, for a bomb. Uh, actually, in 2002, they were buying equipment, but they did not have a uranium program. The North Koreans denied it. The North Koreans said they would be happy to negotiate it because they thought they would have a right to such a uranium bomb. But they didn't have one at that time. They denied having one at the time. Uh, the Bush uh, people that were sent there, uh, kind of low-level diplomats from the State Department, had no authority to negotiate. So they just delivered an ultimatum to North Korea and said, you're doing this. You're violating this. We're ripping up the agreement. And like, as I said at the beginning of the interview, that's sort of when this nuclear crisis really began. Because and when-
0: 2000, 2002 is the year that Bush labels North Korea part of the axis of exactly. evil as well.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So, you know as part of the 90s agreement this is also important for Americans to understand north korea as as part of that agreed framework north korea and the us were you know pledged publicly to move as soon as possible toward full political and economic normalization in other words you know recognizing each other embassies in each other's capital and so on you know starting a normal relationship and and you know when the uh, agreement became under fire in the U.S. Congress, in particular, North Korea started seeing that the U.S. was was pulling away from the agreement, uh, and so a lot of analysts, people who were actually in the government at that time, think that North Korea, you know, started this uranium program as sort of you know a hedge in case the U.S. did violate it. Um, but at any rate, the, the agreement fell apart in in two thousand two, two thousand three. But at the latter part of the Bush administration. He started negotiating with North Korea again in these six-party talks. Uh, amazingly, he opened negotiations with North Korea three weeks after they exploded their first nuclear bomb. Um, and six-party talk
0: talks include uh, included Japan, U.S., South Korea, Japan, China. China,
1: Russia. Uh, and they made some progress there. Uh, that was when you know North Korea's designation as a Terrorist support of terrorism was was dropped by the Bush administration, which was just renewed the other day by Trump, um, and the, and and so there were there was talks that were going on. But the, the getting back to my point about South Korea was at the time, No moo Hyun, the progressive in South Korea who was in favor of the Sunshine Policy and was carrying it out, was still president, and so you know when so it, it was uh, that that set the stage for. Uh, a, you know, negotiations with the North uh, and these six-party talks because South Korea and North Korea were still talking and engaging in, in you know, these various measures, political and economic. But in 2008, a right-winger was elected president of South Korea, Emu Buk, and that's when the policy really changed. He ran sort of like Bush did and the Republicans did. Against the, you know, with a policy against this agreed framework and that sort of normalization of ties with, with North Korea, he did not like the Sunshine Policy.
0: And what sort of popular conservative sentiment was he tapping into at the time against that w- that was hostile to this, these negotiations?
1: There's a very strong uh, conservative, anti-communist streak in in South Korea. I would, you know, it's sort of older people. Uh, but there's a, you know, it's 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 there, uh, and you know, he he won that. Uh, the conservatives won that election. Uh, it was a pretty narrow election, but those economic issues had played into it as well. Uh, and as you know, it's as they often do, the more progressive uh, liberal candidates, you know, split. And uh, is the split so,
0: typically between the more radical left and more center left uh, liberals, or it's,
1: no, no? It's more like within this within the center left, I would say. But I mean, you know, so, but the, the, uh, the left groups, labor movement, uh, other groups that are two more to the left, you know, we'll, 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 you know, decide, you know, who to, who to support in, in an election. Um, but and, ra- but it,
0: and radical left candidates typically get maybe what, like between 10 and 20% of the vote.
1: Well, it's, it's, it's important to clarify language here, because sure. uh, nobody really runs as a radical leftist in South Korea. Uh, because uh, the the, le- the whole term leftist there, you know, means something different than it does here.
0: Your party I mean, will get banned. <laughs>
1: well, that's exactly. And, and also there's this national security law, which I mentioned earlier, uh, which basically the, this law says in anything, uh, if you were South Korean or even a visiting foreigner, And you say things that are similar to what North Korea says, or align with what North Korea says, uh, and or you go to travel without without authorization in North Korea, you violate the national security law, and you can be jailed uh, for long periods of time, and you also remain on on a blacklist, basically, and you you have to report after even after your term is up, you have to report to the police every six months and so on. But you know, so there's there's these strong controls. But at any rate. The Conservatives won in 2008, it's, it's, you know, uh, uh, 2007 election, he took over in 2008. And so, you know, he, Im Myung-buk was against the, the in sort of, negotiations with, with North Korea and the sunshine policy, and so uh, made, started making demands as part of the Six Party talks that North Korea rejected. Those talks kind of floundered as a result, and you know, when Obama came in, like I said, at the very top of the show, like Obama. Rejected the idea of negotiations early on in his administration, even though he ran for president, saying he would talk to the leaders of Iran and North Korea. He never did talk to the leaders of North Korea, and the the, the sort of uh, you know the, this the, they were they were thinking the thinking was North Korea can't last, will probably collapse, and uh, therefore we should try to push that collapse with with you know sanctions and and uh, you know as if people read the New York Times. David Sanger's is always getting these leaks about, the, you know, the massive kind of cyber war that that the Obama administration launched against, the, you know, trying to uh, undermine the North Korean, you know, missile and nuclear program by hacking into their their systems and supposedly making missiles spin out of control and things like this. So, you know, there was this, and also under Obama, these these military exercises really stepped up as well, uh, and so there was an escalation on both sides. Um, and uh, so, you know, there was also an incident in, 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 in 2010 where a North South Korean warship was uh, exploded and the, the story was that it was a North Korean, North Korean torpedo. It was never quite proven, but that's the general agreement that there was a North Korean torpedo that sank it. And that really, you know, that was during Im young period and that really sent you know, uh, relationships spiraling, um, and under Park Geun-hye, relations got worse. Uh, and when military tensions uh, peaked a few years ago, uh, the last remnant of the Sunshine Policy, this Kaesong Industrial Zone, which I used to call like the canary in the Korean coal mine, that <laughs> was that was shut down. As long as that was open, I thought, okay, things are going to be okay because there's like you know, South Korean. Business people and, you know, all kinds of, you know, people were crossing the border every day to go to this industrial zone. As long as that was functioning, you know, relationships would, you know, would not completely deteriorate. But that was shut down under, under Park's uh, orders um, in, under, her, under her government. And a lot of people in, in South Korea, you know, were, were upset about that because they also believed that it was kind of a you know, lifeline toward at least holding on to something with North Korea. Uh, some semblance of, of normalcy. So, uh, you know, the, Obama's policies, uh, as I've written in uh, its articles recently in Alternate and, and The Nation, you know, we're, really made things a lot worse. And, of course, North Korea under Obama uh, tested, I think it was three, three more nuclear weapons. If, 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 several nuclear weapons they tested on Obama. They tested one under Bush. And then they tested one a few months ago um so so you know the the Obama's advisors were pretty hard line on on North Korea, and you know i think I think it's accurate to say that you know Trump inherited you know a very tense situation that's not of his own making, but as I said, he's made it much worse.
0: I want to talk about the context that that Moon is elected into to what extent was it a collapse of the right in South Korea that allowed him to win? And to what degree did his victory reflect growing popular support for both a more left of center domestic and economic program and growing support for renewed dialogue with North Korea?
1: Well, he ran on a campaign for dialogue with North Korea and, and going back to the sunshine policy. I was in South Korea in April and May when he was running. In fact, I interviewed him for the nation two days before his election. I saw him in two rallies at, in Gwangju city in the, in the Southwest. Both times he, there was a very large photograph, I guess his, his people carried around of Kim Dae-jung and No-Mu-hyun, his predecessors. Uh, and he, he would hold, hold up a picture and, you know, basically saying he was their, you know, successor. And by the way, under the government of No Moo uh, Moon Jae In was his chief of staff, so very involved in every key decision made under No Moo and he accompanied uh, President No in 2007 when the second uh, uh, summit meeting between North and South Korean leaders took place. So he's had practice, you know, you know, negotiating with the North, and, and you know, went, went to the North at one time, and actually his, you know, his family originally came. North Korea were, were brought to South Korea by U.S. Uh, ships and during the war in 1950. Um, but you know he he was a uh, Moon Jae-in was a, um, a human rights lawyer as well, a labor lawyer uh, from Busan, a southern port city, uh, and uh, he he was very active in the you know democratic movement. Arrested a couple times, like you know thousands of South Koreans were uh, protesting the the. The militarist military governments of Park Chung Hee and then Chun Doo Hwan, you know, later on. Um, and he, when he was, his, when he ran for president, uh, the, he was running. I would say the main focus uh, was economic, because in South Korea there's a, a serious problem of of youth unemployment, and there's a very serious pro- problem of 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 these uh, kind of uh, Walmart-like jobs where people don't have uh, th- don't have you know full benefits and full pay, and you kind of work under contract from year to f- year, and sometimes even month flex- to month,
0: Flexibilized and casualized,
1: casual casual workers, and it's a very it's just it's just a terrible situation for many Korean workers. That's the way a lot of Korean conglomerates you know survive is that they have you know sort of a core of full time workers, and then they just sort of employ you know at will when they need contract you know, contract workers, they employ them, and you don't have any benefits. And it's about 50% of the total Korean workforce. So, you know, that combined with unemployment and just the people's unhappiness with the Park geun hye government uh, was, was how he won. And, and you know, the, the uh, there was five candidates. He was sort of, you know, I would say more like center left. There was actually two candidates that were more to his left, one of whom was, you know, came direct roots in the labor movement. So he had, you know, the the left candidates. You know, he got forty percent of the vote. Uh, the, the the next highest was the right wing candidate, who was sort of, you know, Pat successor. Um successor, and he got twenty percent. And that twenty percent is, you know, this very raucous, uh, you know, super anti-communist, um, you know, mostly, you know, o- older people, uh, and and you know. They, they they're also sort of from one region of of korea um uh so so that's how that's how he won and i think you know people and when i did interview him in in uh you know two days before his election when i was pretty much assured that he was going to win you know as i you know talked about in the nation he basically said his election was was sort of the re- result of the candlelight movement the candlelight revolution and he against park against park and you know and he you know Put his that that candlelight kind of revolution is part of the long line of of you know protest movements that led the way for democracy, starting with you know uh, 1960 uprising against Sigmund Rhee, and then the 79 assassination of Park Chung Hee, which took place during huge uprising in his own city of Busan, and then the Gwangju uprising in the 1997 democratic uprising, and then the candlelight revolution. So that's how the way he sees it is the way a lot of south Koreans uh, see it as well
0: and so what what chance does does moon have to pursue nego- a, a negotiation based relationship with north korea with trump's provocations on one side and kim jong un's provocations on the other
1: well it's made it very difficult obviously i mean he you know he reached out you know immediately on becoming president and said he wanted to have military to military and red cross talks with North Korea and the North Koreans basically ignored him and they they consider him you know the South Korea government and Moon Jae-in as basically you know tools of of the US and don't think that he has real, real independence uh, and you know they can point to some things that that are that are true for example you know a lot of Americans don't know this but you know this the, you know the South Korean and US military are joined in this there's a joint military command US South Korea command and that is now headed by a South Korean general but during wartime the commander is a US general so if if there is a war in Korea uh, and South Korean military is mobilized it goes under a US general who's their commander and that's the only country in the world where a foreign general is in charge of their army wow. during during a war. And it's very unusual, and it, and it does make you think, like you know, how can South Korea really be a sovereign democ- sovereign country in that situation? And well, they're te- it, they're very they're not,
0: technically not.
1: They're technically not.
0: And so, and so it's that, rational for North Korea to say, well, if I have this belligerent enemy in the United States, that's ultimately in charge of South Korea, why am I going to talk to Moon when he, at the end of the day, cannot be the guarantor of, of anything?
1: Exactly. And, and so his overtures have, have been largely rejected. Uh, they also, you know, but you know, jae on, on on security issues on military issues was never never didn't really run as a conservative I mean he he's taken a lot of steps I mean he didn't really run as a liberal he, he's taken steps uh that that the the Korean left and and the, the sort of large I would say liberal middle uh, uh, support such as you know dialogue you know putting dialogue first with with, with North Korea but you know he's also pushed you know uh I mean, he, he agreed to the, you know, the deployment of THAAD, you know, the, the theater anti-missile system installed by the U.S. that was agreed to by Park Geun-hye.
0: But he'd opposed and, it. He'd opposed it at some point during his campaign. Hadn't well, he? He,
1: had, he had not flatly opposed it. He had opposed, He said during the campaign that the next government should decide.
0: And it, it was seen not, as the U.S. and be, South Korea rushing to put it into place before he took office.
1: Right. And he was very upset about that. But once the tensions, you know, escalated, he agreed to ex- expand the THAAD system. And and so, you know, we've done that. And he, and he's also, uh, you know, gone along with and actually praised, you know, Trump's very hardline policies and statements. You know, for example, you know, the day after, after Trump addressed the United Nations and said, you know, the United States will totally destroy North Korea if they continue to threaten it. Threaten the U.S. Uh, you know, Moon Jae-in, you know, complimented a, him on a speech and a meeting with Trump, and and you know they 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 followed this sort of you know very hardline you know sanctions first policy of trying to isolate North Korea economically to sort of force them into talks. But he's taken some very important steps independent of the U.S. I, I, my latest article in the Nation focuses on when Trump was there in South Korea recently. Uh, just before and at, during, when he was there, uh, moon Jane took certain steps to, to really, uh, uh you know, sh- that were independent of what the U S wants. Like for example, uh, he signed, they reached an agreement with China kind of normalizing relations and kind of putting the whole issue of fad, which China has very much opposed yeah. behind them. And that was partly to get, to get China, um, uh, you know, in supporting, uh, ne- negotiations, But he also flatly rejected this U.S. push toward a trilateral military alliance between the U.S., Japan, and South Korea. Uh, You know, they said they, 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 you know, Moon said South Korea will take part in, you know, know, certain kinds of cooperation with the Japanese military, but does not want to have an alliance. And then the next day his foreign minister said uh, that they're not going to join this sort of U.S.-Japan, you know, anti-missile defense system that's been set up in Northeast Asia. They're not going to be formally part of that. So, you know, he's trying to, you know, play this in, in a way to retain some kind of, some kind of independence and in, independent, you know, mo- uh, ability to, to, to operate independently. Uh, and he always stresses, you know, we cannot have a war in South Korea. It's just, you know, unthinkable. And I think they went out of their way. Uh, you know, to show Trump when he was there, when he says totally destroy North Korea, what that could mean for South Korea. I mean, Trump flew over Seoul. He saw how close Seoul is to the DMZ. You know, I'm sure that he's gotten plenty of intelligence to tell him exactly where all the artillery is and how much damage could happen even in the first, you know, if he ap- attacks North Korea, how much damage could occur over the next, you know, few hours and days if, if that that happened because North Korea has just, you know, massive amounts of conventional weapons on the border <laughs> that could strike not only Seoul, U.S. bases in South Korea, but he could strike, you know, U.S. bases in Japan and Okinawa as well, Guam even. So
0: Trump has so, massive amounts of intelligence, but not massive amounts of intelligence necessarily. Intelligence that's that, said, <laughs> that's that's yeah. the problem. Um, I want to turn briefly. Um, the if you could just sketch out the the regional politics at play first. Uh, what China wants out of this? There's an argument that they prefer the status quo because it deflects the U.S. from pushing China on economic issues. That's a line pushed by Steve Bannon on the right, but also Robert Cutner on the left and others. They obviously don't want a unified. Korean peninsula under the rule of a US aligned Seoul and then the second part of the second piece of the regional puzzle is is Japan and an increasingly military oriented government under
1: conservative Shinzo Abe well China uh you know yeah like you said they don't want they don't want a unified Korea under under South Korea US control or they don't want US troops on their borders you know unthinkable and for them and they, want, they don't want a war uh, and all the, the, the chaos that would result from a war and the horror that would result from the war. Um, and, and so, you know, I think, you know, they're actually playing a pretty important role in terms of, I mean, you know, both Russia and China have voted in favor of these increased sanctions at the UN Security Council. They both have a veto. They could both veto it if they wanted to. Each one could veto it, but they've they voted for these sanctions. So they're, you know, they're trying to defuse the situation by trying to put some pressure on 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 the DPRK and, and Kim Jong Un. But um, you know, during the UN debates, and they continually say this, they've pushed for negotiation. They say diplomacy; it's got to be resolved diplomatically. And they've pushed this proposal for a freeze for freeze under which North Korea would you know freeze their Nuclear and missile programs in, in the U.S. and South Korea would freeze or scale back drastically their military exercises. Trump rejected this. The US, you know, White House has well, rejected this, and uh, so you know that that a lot of people think that's the only way that there can be negotiations. So uh, uh, you know, so so Moon Jae-in is trying to thread that trying to thread that needle. I mean, he's 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 continually saying. You know, a war is unthinkable. So, so, so he he wants to, uh, you know, I think he's hoping that China can play an ameliorate you know, sort of help get talks going, um, and and so I think that was part of the reason for his visit, you know, this agreement recently with China. Uh, he's also had similar discussions with with Russia and Putin's government. Uh, and you know, but economically, you know, South Korea is you know very integrated with with the East Asia region. Uh, you know, far more integrated in sort of in, in, than the U.S. is, and they have you know close economic ties with with China. Um, and so you know that 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 plays a that plays a big role too. Um, and I and I think that uh, the South Koreans are working very hard, I believe, to. Try to get you know negotiations going, uh, in some in some kind of way. But but Trump's hard line and the hard line, you know this declaration the other day of you know putting them back on the terrorist list uh, is only going to complement things, compl- complicate things because North Korea, you know, has already been very angry about that, and and uh, South Korea, you know, officially approved it. But if you read, you know, between the lines in the Korean media, there's a lot of criticism of that, too. I mean, how in the world do they expect to get any kind of negotiations going if they just don't give North Korea any kind of off ramp to to, you know, to to sort of, you know, exit from this very, very tense situation?
0: And lastly, most discussions about the this this topic focus a lot on the North Korean regime and obviously we haven't and that's why I've focused on the stuff that often gets ignored but I do want to talk about North Korea briefly before we finish up if you could just sketch out the current state of the North Korean regime and how Kim Jong Un fits in to his dynastic predecessors
1: first of all North Korea has an incredibly you know repressive apparatus uh, where even you know former you know ambassadors are recalled and you know put in its its prison system for going against you know the the political line of the day, and you know rules through you know, people can be there's this pervasive police state, uh, which makes it very difficult you know for for people to well it makes impossible for you know anyone to 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 differ publicly with any kind of regime policy. Uh and this, there's a you know, they have an intranet intranet in North Korea, but it's you know completely it's cut off from the world. The only information people in North Korea get is through, you know, uh electronic devices, you know, smuggled in uh from South Korea or outside. And that there's a lot of that going on. Uh that people do watch you know, you know, South Korean television shows there. Uh and you know, on the other hand, you know, there's there's this I mean it's not a backward country economically uh did, despite the, you know despite the controls and despite these these sanctions uh, I mean you can see the results of it I mean a backward country can't you know develop nuclear weapons and, and missile technology uh, where you have ICBMs that could p- possibly hit the United States so you know they've developed this uh, you know pretty much you know on their own uh, and and they've of course they've borrowed you know from they've gotten scientists from in the early days from Russia and Technology from Russia, Pakistan, other countries, uh, Iran, possibly you know to, with their with their missile program. But uh, I think I think their idea is to uh, uh, you know build a deterrence against the United States and then negotiate from what would be a sort of you know a, a position of strength. So uh, they're saying, and their diplomats have said this in recent weeks uh, to Americans who have met with them. Uh, that they may do a few more missile tests uh, and then, you know, possibly another nuclear test and that will complete their sort of nuclear development program. And then they want to focus on economic, on the economic development. Uh, and I think it, it's, it, so, so Kim Jong-un's, uh, you know, is, is trying to sort of use his nuclear power as, as a deterrence and as sort of a wedge to get the U.S. to negotiate. Whereas his father, Kim Jong Il, was 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 negotiating much more out of a position of, of weakness, where he was basically trying to, you know, uh, trade his nuclear and military program, trade that for like a better relationship with the United States and and, and countries in the region. Uh, so so you know. Kim Jong Un is trying to project this idea of this, you know, very very powerful North Korea, able to, you know, have a, you know, sort of hold the United States to a draw in, you know, militarily, which is foolish because, you know, he he knows damn well that the U.S. could, you know, completely destroy North Korea as North, as Trump says It as it certainly has the capability militarily to to do it. Uh, but I think the, so you know, I'm not. There's a lot of predictions in the U.S. that you know North Korean regime is coming apart, and you know they point to these defectors like this, you know this, this uh, high-level guy from the uh, London embassy and, and others. Uh, they point to his alleged assassination of Kim 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 Jong Un's uh, half brother in, in the Malaysian airport as a sign of you know they're trying to destroy any uh, any dissidents within. Within the North Korea regime, uh, so you know that's that's true, but I don't see any signs of kind of mass revolt or or anything like in North Korea, and I don't think there's there's grounds to say that it's you know there's always predictions that it's going to collapse in the next year or so. You can actually read about fifty years of reporting that you know North Korea is going to collapse in two years. I mean, <laughs> it's 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 got a pretty strong internal cohesion. You know, partly due to the to the nature of, the, of its of its you know repressive police state apparatus, but you know th- th- there's enough there's enough belief in the regime and there's enough belief in, in you know their their economic developments that they've you know, come back from a situation of of a very you know when there was starvation and there was you know famine in the 1990s they've come back from that and they've maintained this sort of independence between China and Russia and great powers. And so there is within within North Korea, you know, you can even see this when you read interviews with North Korean defectors, there's a certain kind of respect they have for that ability to, to maintain that kind of independence. I mean, people are a lot of, unhappy about a lot of other things there, you know, deservedly so, uh, but it's not going to collapse. And, and I just keep saying this over and over again that, you know, the only way to have a solution is to you know negotiate with them and talk directly. With
0: them. Well, I ironically has the external pressure and bellicosity towards North Korea. M- might that have strengthened the internal cohesion? And could negotiations actually play a role in opening up North Korean society? And in the long run, potentially, hypothetically, transforming it towards something better.
1: Well. I think it could, but it's got to be open-ended. I mean, you, like they just, you know, the U.S. Congress, just after this kid, Otto Warmbier, you know, came back from North Korea in a coma and died, they, you know, they passed the bill outlawing any U.S. travel to North Korea. So now no, no Americans can go there for the first time ever. Uh, you know, you can go there if you get special permission as a journalist or an aid worker, but, you know, travel is curtailed. So. You know, and, and they're trying to get all countries to cut off their ties, you know, South Central America, South America, Asia, you know, lots of countries are starting to, you know, end their diplomatic relations with North Korea. So further isolating it. If you want North Korea to change, they've got they've got to get get outside, you know, they've got to talk to people from outside. If you completely cut them off, things will never change inside. And but I don't think, you know, like this and any other situation. The U.S. has the right to go in and, 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 you know, regime change or change a regime because we don't like it. I mean, I, th- I think change will come gradually if the U.S. could lessen its military involvement. I think North and South Korea are actually totally capable of of, of negotiating, working things out uh, with themselves. And it could it could happen. They've made progress in, in, in the past. Uh, and And I think it requires you know a, a major change in in the in u s. policy in Korea and in the region. Um, but you know ultimately, engagement is the way to to change minds, you know, on both sides. I mean, when they see a lot of people made fun of um, you know when the, and, and, you know what's the guy from the NBA went over there and, and <laughs> Dennis and, Rodman. <laughs> and Dennis Rodman went over there. A lot of people made fun of Dennis Rodman, but, you know, for young Koreans, North Koreans, uh, this was televised, of course, when North Koreans who've been brought up from, you know, babies to think that Americans are devils and they're out to kill them, see a bunch of NBA players laughing it up and tossing basketballs and and hamming it up with Kim Jong-un, they, they you know, it, 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 it changes their view of Americans. Yeah. And I think, you know, we need to have... You know re- reciprocity with meeting North Koreans and, and on you know just ordinary north Korean North Koreans, if that's possible. So I think um, engagement is, is way to go, and I, I just hope that there can be a negotiated so, uh, solution to this. Uh, i I really do not think at this point the u s. is going to go to war, but you know Trump is quite unpredictable. and I think a lot of South Koreans, their biggest worry is what Trump will do, not what Kim Jong-un will do.
0: Tim Sharak, thank you very much.
1: Thank you. Really appreciate the time.
0: Tim Shorrock is a journalist covering the Koreas. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said while tackling the dotard en route to the Red Button, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting usually two new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our Postmaster General is Christian Bowe. Follow us on Twitter at the Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review. Those reviews help put us in touch with new listeners. What also helps put us in touch with new listeners is you telling your friends, and you can do that through the communications media of your choice. Phone calls, in-person conversations, text messages, tweets. Please make propaganda for us. And... Also, find us on Patreon and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks a month is a big help.